0: Twisdale, producer and host of Prose Poetry and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with local Puget Sound islander Charlie Henley. Hello Charlie and thanks for joining me today. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now which island do you live on again? Uh, I live up on Bainbridge Island. That's what I thought. Okie doke. So for everyone joining us today, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thank you for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. To get us started, Charlie, how about you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're at in your life, what you're doing. Uh,
1: so I have been living on Bainbridge for the last year, uh, really enjoying it here in Washington. Um, my wife and I moved out here when she got a job at Seattle University, uh, and uh, we had been living in Cincinnati, Ohio, and really wanted to get back to the Pacific Northwest, and um, I'd gone to college and some high school in Montana, Missoula, and, and Bozeman uh, for high school. And she's from, from Idaho, from Moscow, Idaho. And so we'd just been spending years of our lives trying to get back and finally had the chance to do it. And so we're happy to be back here. Um, I still teach uh, in Cincinnati on, online, so I just I, I use the, the satellites and the Internet and all of that um, and teach creative writing and various literature courses.
0: Wow, I think that is fabulous. Um, What exactly does that sort of look like?
1: Well, I make uh, videos of um, some craft videos. So there will be a video about point of view, a video about characterization, uh, and then put those up on a website on Blackboard, one of the standard websites that are used by a lot of universities and they watch those at their own pace. So they can come in, you know, in the middle of the night if that's when they have time to do it. They can come and watch it at at 4 in the morning, whatever. And then they have exercises and and discussion boards and things like that. So it's not really um, a video of me lecturing to them so much. It's uh, sort of a a PowerPoint that I've taken and then created a a video out of.
0: So just um, because I'm imagining that – Basically, everyone in their 40s on up has never done this. Like when I went to college, it certainly wasn't happening. So this, just for a couple minutes, I want to sort of focus in on this um, to really create like a visual. Um, So this is um, a completely normal core class that just happens to be offered in this sort of self-directed study way.
1: That's right. And I'm so I'm in my 40s as well, so I never took a class like this. um, (laughs) I, you know... All my students have taken probably, you know, a dozen of these classes, half dozen of these classes. Even if they're um, on-campus students at UC, uh, they've already taken online courses. So they know a lot about this kind of stuff. And I've been doing this now for a couple years, so I'm really still just learning about how it's all done. Uh, But it's becoming, I think, a pretty normal uh, sort of thing. And the, this, the course that I teach is uh, Intro to Creative Writing. I also have another one on uh, writing science fiction and fantasy. And then I have another, a couple courses on uh, literature, on, on various kinds of science fiction literature. So, sort of, uh, you know, what you would take in a lit course uh, where you study texts by various famous authors and then uh, also the more creative courses that, that I have people take.
0: Really cool. It is very cool. And it's
1: a, you know, it, it, it's sort of this. New thing, obviously, uh, that can go in any number of different directions. But one of the most important things about it that I always think about is the way that we're able to get education, not just you know about creative writing and literature, but any kind of education, out into the, the world, into populations that couldn't necessarily get to a traditional university. Um, and so that, I think, is a really great thing, if you know, so long as, as that's the, the model that people are using when they uh, institute it. Um, you know, this desire to spread some
0: sort of educational opportunity. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, the the promise of the Internet is um, still somewhat yet to be fully realized, but this is a great example of, of, um, I mean, even a student who, say, was um, like, you know, imagine if two of the classes that you wanted to take were in the morning and the third class that, you wanted to take conflicted with, you know, your job or something else, but you could also take it at 7 o'clock at night or as a completely independent study like yours is. That would allow a person, instead of saying, oh, I have to commute twice into the city or I have to stay at college all day long, you know, it it makes it a lot easier for them to organize their life around their classes. It
1: really does. I mean, college was designed, you say, 100 years ago or even – 30 years ago, 20 years ago, for this population that was 18 to 22. They didn't have kids. They didn't have to, to work necessarily. And so they were able to go to this place and show up. But, of course, not everybody fits into that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, this is a way, I think, if it's done properly to reach those other other populations.
0: Yeah, all right. Okay. Cool. So, so that gives us some background, a little bit on on that piece. You come from a literary family as well, so it seems like you are steeped in the subject that you currently enjoy as your career.
1: Yes, I mean, I have. Uh, I mean, I've been reading since I was a little kid, and have I moved around a lot when I was was a kid, um, and so I. But I always had books as kind of this
0: right. you know,
1: place to go to. So I really started off as a reader, and and uh, I think you know when I was a kid, if you say, well, what do what do you want to do when you grow up? I would have said I want to be a pirate or something of that nature. (laughs) And you can't really be a pirate, of course. I mean, I guess you I guess you can, but it's along the way you kind of discover I could write about being a pirate, or I you know I I could sort of live that imaginative kind of life uh, through writing. And of course, my mother uh, was was a writer. She uh, achieved um, a level of success at it that that uh, seems Seemed really good uh, around the time that I was uh, seventeen or eighteen or so.
2: Mm-hmm. So up,
1: you know, up until then, I hadn't really seen uh, really a, a model of, of success at, at writing. But I certainly had been exposed to a life of reading. And then after that, I saw her, her, you know, do um, the kinds of things that, that she was able to. Do. Uh, and and so it, the, the whole world of writing kind of opened up for me. Right, and looked like a, a really interesting, fun thing to do. Right,
0: right, right. And, and so. It well, and of course, Prose Poaching Purpose is about um, how writers, a wide range of writers from poets to fiction, nonfiction, bloggers, journalists, you know, how we can inspire positive social change in the world through, you know, one reader at a time, one listener at a time, whatever. So, what I think is really cool is that um, you, one of the cool things about having you on the show is that. As I was reading through your collection of shorts, I found that they were not within the typical genre of, they're certainly not like self-help, you know, inspirational book. That's not really the type of stuff that I'm usually working on. But most work, um, there's a, I don't know, not the nonfiction, but a lot of times the fictional stories will tend to have like, maybe a a positive ending, but not always. And what I have found is that sometimes it's in the slightly darker genres where a writer is trying to pry out and illuminate truths that can inspire people amidst the dark carnage that can sometimes be a part of our lives or our reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember when I sent you that email and I said, okay, so here's the premise of my show. I've been reading your shorts. Um, how do you feel that this work is, you know, designed to impact your writers in a certain uh, – readers in a certain way? You know, what, what are you looking for here? And I really loved your answer. So how – genre-wise what would you categorize your shorts in the deep code that's the name of the book folks is the deep code it's a collection of stories by Charlie Henley um what would you categorize these pieces genre-wise
1: so i mean these are uh, from a from a literature taxonomy perspective i mean they're they're realistic short stories uh, mm-hmm. Several of them are I would say coming coming out of the southern Gothic genre, those that are kind of in the in, in Mississippi and Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even the ones that are in the West in Montana and New Mexico uh, still really come out of that that southern Gothic tradition. So I think that's kind of where it's it's coming from uh, it, it, to, to get to, to your point about um, you know the, the, the sort of positive message negative, uh, message and things. I, I I think a lot of my stories do kind of end with um, a kind of a darker note. Uh, maybe uh, an author like William Gay would be perhaps a, a kind of a, um, an influence on that. But I, I always um, or often anyway, uh, you know, try to have these kinds of uh, moments within that of you know human human triumph, where where we're really kind of seeing someone continuing to endure under. Often self-imposed, uh, you know, negative situations. In fact, in fact, I think most of my characters are kind of uh, uh, they have self-imposed problems. But that doesn't mean they're not problems. I mean, they, you know, they they still have
0: difficulties. Well, let's dive into just a couple of these because when um we have had in our community, and obviously this happens in so many communities around the world. You know, especially at a time like this, where on a planetary level, we are in an economic contraction. You know, we are, mm-hmm. we are, 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 everyone is experiencing an increase sort of in stress. And in, and a lot of um, times when you have, let's say you have a person who's depressed or they're suicidal, um, you know, whatever, when you get into that realm, one of the pieces of advice that 's given if you 're being trained like i I spent some time doing, I was on a suicide and crisis hotline, so I would show up at you know ten o'clock and work until three in the morning and I was there to take phone calls from people who were in a state of real um, emergency and and whatnot. And the most important piece of information I kept from that experience. Was that you don't want to tell this person everything's great, everything's fine, you know, you don't want to be chipper, you don't want to problem solve, you know, you actually want to acknowledge, accept, hear, and allow their pain to be there. And that, yes, that, that makes perfect sense. yes, it, you know, I mean, it's, um, a lot of times it was like, you know, just really active listening. Like right now you're feeling like you have no options. And they go blah, 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 blah. Right now you don't see how you're going to possibly overcome this. Blah, 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 blah. You know, wow, there's just nothing that's working right now. Blah, 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 And as you would say these things and listen authentically and say back to them, they would be able to start to themselves find their way out because that was a form of support that was really effective. So when I was reading through your shorts, and a couple of them in particular I've highlighted here in the middle, right smack dab in the middle of the collection, um, my thinking was there are people who will read this, and either a family member, a friend, or they themselves have been in a place similar to this, and that is actually very powerful to read a story that you can relate to and to feel in a way understood vicariously. You know, I could imagine there would be some actually great value and power to that.
1: I think so. I mean, I think one of the most important things – there's a ton of things that you get from fiction. I don't want to say that there's any one that is the most important. But one of the most important things I think that we get out of fiction – is a sense of, of empathy, you know, it, it and all fiction does this. I mean, all fiction mm-hmm. forces you to be somebody else for a little bit. Um, and so no matter what fiction is you're reading, you're exercising that part of your brain. You're using that part of your brain mm-hmm. uh, for something. Now, I think some fiction probably does a better job of it than others, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, for, for me, I'm looking at these characters that are – you know, they're, 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 they're people, they're bits of people that I've known in the past. They're the kinds of people that I've been around when, when I was younger. And you use the term listening, like you would just, you know, you would go to um, to work at, at the Crisis Hotline and and just listen to them. And I think that's what I try to do with these characters. I just want to listen to them and let them do what it is that they're going to do without trying to make them do something else, without trying to pack them into some kind of box where they're going to have this. You know where the epiphany at the end is going to be great and I'm happy because of mm-hmm. something. Uh, you know I just I just try to listen to them, do their thing and I, I think for me anyway, that's the way to write a short story and that's what, what what I suggest to other people who are trying to write short stories and then if you're reading stories, you know rather than getting upset at the end when, it, when, when the the girl and the guy don't like Mary and walk off in the sunset or something. Uh, you know, just let the story happen and, and feel what you feel mm-hmm. as a result of the story and then you'll come away from it. I think about better person um, just for having experienced somebody else's life.
0: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had uh, I don't know, an aha moment about a week ago in that, like you, I moved a lot as a child. I just basically moved almost every six months basically like my entire childhood and um I always had my books, right? I mean, you don't really have friends when you're endlessly moving back and forth from state to state, from town to town. Like, I never, I didn't go from the same place back to the same place. You know, it's always somewhere new. So, you don't really have human friends very readily or quickly. And, um, but you have your characters and you have these books and these series and whatnot. And, it, and I've always had this sense that my children growing up during the computer gaming um, generation, they, it's just it's hard for books to compete with the intentional ways in which computer games, especially for male teenagers, are designed to just completely get you in the zone. It's sort of like McDonald's. You know, they figured out how to do the fat-sugar-salt combo so that people are just like, like viscerally locked in. And computer games have used all the wisdom of sociology and psychology and whatnot to do the same thing. And I kept trying to figure out why my gut was telling me the kids are missing something from not reading. And I couldn't figure it out until about a week ago it hit me that when you're reading novels in particular – They are almost always a story about how a character slash person faces challenges, stays engaged, believes they can overcome them, and eventually does. They they model that type of, yes, I can. It doesn't matter if I'm up against vampires or up against the secret police or who I'm up against in general, if it's fictional, especially. Yes, I can most of the time because that's what makes people feel really happy and good. And it made me realize that if kids don't read, like I was, I have all these massive, you know, authors that I read everything they ever wrote and went on to the next author. And I have all these characters in my life that are in my memory that formed my personal belief that yes I can achieve my goals and you don't actually have that with most of the computer gaming templates most of them are based upon skill collection and you know new champs and learning new ch- All this but they're not there's nothing in there about the story of yes I can
1: right I I mean I I think there are some fun computer games uh of course out there um I don't spend a lot of. I don't have time to spend a lot of time oh, playing. I should actually games.
0: say I play with my children, so I know that I spent four years playing Minecraft. I spent two years playing League of Legends. I main Teemo, top lane. So I actually should say I've played the games with the kids, so I would really know them and I like them. I still think they don't give what the books give.
1: Right, well, I would agree. I would agree with that completely. That's you know, so you 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 will learn a puzzle or something. I, I really like the game Portal um, because it has uh, the, all the little with the little robots that are going through trying to figure out how to get through this maze and so I think there's skills to be to be learned there and it can be enjoyable but you never experience you you, 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 you experience the thrill of putting the puzzle together, but you never experience the the kinds of emotions that a character would feel in a book uh, mm-hmm. being you know trapped inside a maze or something like that. So there's this whole avenue of human psychology that, at this point anyway, I think can't really be explored through computer games. And that doesn't mean that the future isn't one in which it can be. I, I certainly think they're they're getting better and better and more immersive, and who knows?
0: Well, know? they could have been doing it from but, the beginning. I just don't think the intention is is there, or maybe the venue didn't support it. But, like, my son, when he was about, when he was younger, like around 9, 10, 11, um, he did read a lot. The kid started reading on his own. He would read like a... 200 page book a day, you know, and then he got into the computer world and just the books got dropped. But I remember there were times where I would walk in the room and see him sitting in a chair with tears dripping down his cheeks because of something going on in that story. And that certainly doesn't happen in a computer game. You're never going to feel empathy or cry. You're going to feel pissed off and angry or celebratory and, and know triumphant. But that type of what you were saying about the empathy piece Wow! In today's world, we really need more empathy, not less.
1: Right, and I think that definitely happens with reading. I mean, one one thing about reading is that the you know the the art itself is actually happening in your brain, inside your brain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the page, there's just those words that right. if you, you, you look at them, there you know you get far enough away from them, you, don't even know what they're what they're saying. They're just you know black lines. But the imagination that gets brought to that is entirely from you. So. So, so you, the reader, really creates—you know—you create the story when you read in a way that you know the the, the screen just can't ever do. And I would—I mean, I would lump TV in with that, even though mm-hmm. uh, TV maybe is a little bit better at getting at things like empathy. It still is just something that washes over you in a sort of passive format, rather than something
2: mm-hmm. that
1: that you create yourself. You you play it kind of like a. You know, violinist would play a violin. You play a book, and so mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, bring all this, all this stuff, all the stuff out of your life and your subconscious, yeah, to the book itself.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then let's dive in here a little bit. So, um, for folks who are just joining us right now, uh, my name is March Twisdale. I'm the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And today I'm having a great time talking with Charlie Henley a fellow Puget Sound Islander. And before we return to the interview, I'm going to give a shout-out to a couple of the people who make Voice of Ashon possible. In particular, I'd like to thank Airlift Northwest for supporting this program. Airlift Northwest provides life-saving air medical transport 24 hours a day in our community and throughout the region. For more information, you can visit uwmedicine.org. Backslash airlift slash northwest. Also, John L. Scott were KVSHFM founding underwriters. They are the best people and the best results. Ogido, back to our interview. And I've got two stories in the middle here, which I found okay, one of them I found quite, like you say, very visual. I do very much love the place you create. You do a great job. Like I can taste, smell, and feel this place where these people are. But you do it without the um, obligatory paragraph of descriptors. So I am going to just throw that out there. Some writers will be like, da-da-da-da-da, action, action, action. And then they pause the action to give you this big list of the details of what the room looks like, and then they go back to the action. That never really works great, and you have obviously nailed what does work. I love this. So the name of this short is Escalation Dominance. I want to also say that what I love about this, and then I'll let you tell our listeners a little bit about it. I love how your title has really two meanings, like a larger contextual meaning and then an interpersonal one. And I find that fascinating. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Escalation Dominance.
1: Okay. So Escalation Dominance is a short story about uh, a couple, a married couple, uh, and they are weapon scientists at Los Alamos. One of them is still a weapon scientist, the, the, the wife in the story. Um, has moved into the Red Labs, which is where they do non-classified research. But she really wants to get back to the Green Labs, where they do classified research. Um, of course, there's a moratorium uh, right now on weapons testing, but she would really like to get back to um, doing the weapons testing. To you know, you, you, you drive out in the desert, and you bury this this thing in the ground, and then you blow it up, and uh, it's this really sort of psychologically and existentially a very important sort of uh, thing. For her to do nowadays, they're of course simulating uh, this thing, which is, which can't possibly be as interesting. If this is, you can imagine whatever it is you do that you really love, no matter what that thing is. If you were then not really allowed to do it anymore, but had to just simulate it, it would it would sort of stick in your craw a little
0: bit. Okay, uh, so, so let me check with you really quick. You're saying that factually, right now in the United States of America, at least on paper and potentially also in practice, that there is a moratorium on actually blowing up weapons and analyzing through real explosions what they do and that all of the the work to study how a weapon would behave are done with computer programs
1: that's right that's right so since 92 um, there's been a, a, a moratorium on nuclear testing uh, but they they model what happens in a nuclear explosion using you know the world's most powerful supercomputers that kind of thing to simulate it to see, What'll happen because as the as as time goes by, as the decades go by, the the cores in the weapons are degrading and so we don't really know exactly what's what's gonna happen. I mean that's
0: the Oh so it's not necessarily that they are creating new types of nuclear weapons and trying to extrapolate through a computer how they would act, but literally they're sitting around saying, Well, we've got all these old bombs and what might happen if they go off Thirty years after they were built.
1: Yeah, in order to in order to understand better, and I, I mean, presumably they could also model and build new weapons based off of those models. Uh, I I'm, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what all they're doing. In the, okay. okay in, cool. in the the, the labs there. Um, so, that's so that's the that's, background that's,
0: for the that's character. That's kind of the background. Now, okay.
1: I'll, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how the story started. Yeah. I, uh, so as a as a teacher, I go into class um, all the time, and I tell my students. Uh, you, 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 I, I want you to write a short story in this class. Uh, most students have read, you know, tons of novels, or or even if they haven't read a lot, they've probably read more novels than they have uh, short stories or short story collections just because novels are so, so popular. So a lot of them really want to write novels, and they have those kind of uh, novel plots in their minds.
0: Right. Um,
1: and novels, so we can think of somebody like Tom Clancy or uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh, all my students nowadays, of course, love J.K. Rowling. And so they want to write something like Harry Potter, and I, I love Harry Potter. I love reading it to, to my kids. Um, and it's just it's lots and lots of fun. But it's not a plot that really lends itself to a short story because it's, it's huge, you know. Uh, it's this, like, massive cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil and, and all of that. So I try to get them to think smaller, um, you know, and, and, and not sort of, sort of huge. Like, uh, you can imagine stealing, you know, $20 million from a bank. And that's kind of a novel, whereas stealing $20 from your mom's purse is a short story. Like, okay. <laughs> uh, the metaphor I use for them. Uh, you, these are the kind of characters I tend to tend to write about. Yeah, uh, I was going to so, say,
0: this sounds like your characters.
1: <laughs> so I, I say, you know, you can't write an international techno-thriller in a short story. Mm-hmm. But I had said this over and over again, and I thought, well, well, maybe you can. I mean, have you even tried? And I, and I had to admit I'd never even tried to write an international techno-thriller in the form of a short story. So I, I had just um, gotten back from Rome, from, from Italy, and I thought, well, if I do this, it should probably be set in Rome, because I've just been there, and that'll make it kind of international. And so I thought of these two characters. They were weapon scientists, which seems like the sort of characters you would have in, uh, in a techno-thriller, and they were in a coffee shop in Rome, and they, and, and they just sort of, you know, because I just kind of like try to let my characters do whatever they want to do. They mm-hmm. started arguing about their their lives. Uh, together and their their children they had children at this time in the story um, and I got like twenty pages out of them just arguing and they never left the coffee shop or anything
2: mm-hmm. and they never went
1: anywhere and the Russians never showed up and so <laughs> it sort of didn't so to me I thought well I guess you've proven your point you can't write an Irish so I set it aside um, <laughs> but of course they, they were still there like you know once you invent these characters yes. they're kind of still there sitting yeah. in a coffee shop. So they're always kind of there in the back of my mind. And, in Rome,
0: and no less.
1: In, in, in Rome. I know. And they're, they're no longer in Rome. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I decided, well, you've got to do something with these people. You can't just, just leave them there. Um, I've got this other guy who's uh, he's a, 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 a cop, a, a deputy who's sitting behind a sign, one of those uh, church signs down in Mississippi waiting for his girlfriend to drive by so he can arrest her. And he hasn't gone anywhere either. So I know I need to get back to him someday. <laughs> and this so is he's my, not in this time.
0: collection. He's totally not even in this collection.
1: He's yeah. just sitting there behind that sign.
2: Right, right. Uh,
1: so I've got ai I, you know, I had these characters, and I thought, well, maybe it's not, you know, in Rome. Maybe maybe they're just down at the county fair, or the, the state fair, I mean. And so then I wrote the story Escalation Dollars, and then it all kind of made sense, you know, and so they're arguing about this, uh, this, this child mm-hmm. that he, the Gordon, the husband, um, has had with a, Uh, sort of a local uh, hippie uh, uh, woman, and they can't tell anybody about it because this is the kind of thing that loses you, your security clearance. This would become a real security risk. And so it becomes this kind of secret that she, um, the the narrator of the story, is really trying to hold on to for fear that Gordon is going to lose his security clearance. He doesn't really seem to care about it that much, but Mm -hmm. she really does. So there's this struggle that's taking place. And escalation dominance is, of course, a term out of... um, uh, you know, like uh, the national security. If uh, one side has escalation dominance over the other, right. uh, they are able to defeat the the enemy at whatever level of escalation the enemy wants to wants to make. But of course, we also find that she is is trying to maintain a sense of escalation dominance over mm-hmm. uh, life. You know, she's a very rational person, and she really wants to be able to control the the world around. Her. And of course that.
0: That's hard to do. I mean, mm-hmm. we, just, we just don't get to be in control so much. Well, and it was, I mean, I think um, while you talk just a little bit, because uh, when it comes to short stories, you know, a person who reads novels is mm-hmm. usually looking forward to having a sort of a long term relationship with those characters, an in depth relationship and you spend most novels people spend anywhere from depending on how fast they read anywhere from a super fast reader might blast through something in six to eight hours or it could take 10 to 12 and that's that's actually a lot of time you know walking in the shoes of your character as they go through a whole bunch of experiences especially if it's a series like you were talking about you know the harry potter series or the twilight series or um the hunger game series i mean wow, you know, these span a couple of years, many years. And then you've got a short story, which is uh, like 15 pages long. And you start to get to know someone and they're in the middle of stuff that they're going through. And then it's over and they're gone. That's different. That's really, really different. What do you think the goal is for the writer of a short story? Because it's obviously different.
1: Um, I mean, I, I, so Edgar Allan Poe would say that, you know, it's the establishment of, uh, of, of a feeling, of an emotion, uh, and that that's really what you're after. And so for him, it's dread. Uh, you know, that's what, what he wants. And it's just a, a pure, single feeling that you walk away from the story with. And I think he's got a, a good point there. I don't know that that's, again, the, the whole of it. Um, but I, I, I think you, you just want to explore... You know, a single moment in a person's life, uh, without that kind of sense, and I think think it tends to be kind of an artificial sense that there's this overarching arc to life. Like novels always have a, not always, but ninety-five percent of the time, you know, there's this this grand narrative that's being told in in a novel. And I think, I mean, life isn't really like that. Like, you know, you, you you wake up one day and it's this you know awful day and you wake up the next day, and it's this great day, and, and you know, there's not really that, that, that grand narrative. So I think short stories, uh, you know, uh, try to just, just dig into that that moment, that, that mm-hmm. single instant.
2: Um, mm-hmm. Now, that
1: said, of course, I've read great short stories that cover an entire person's life. But, so you know, uh, Alice Monroe has these these short stories that you read them, and you feel like you've read a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't again. I you know I wouldn't want to say that there's a sort of like one size fits
0: all to it. But no, um, but I think I think and uh, once again, it's we're we're not so much saying everything is this way, but I think there's a generality. Um, there's a oh 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 oh. You're gonna know the name of this author. So Martian Chronicles. Ed- oh, Ray Gr- Ray, there you go. Right. And so my son last year in eighth grade was actually reading through the Martian Chronicles. Really, I'd never read it. You know, I'd always sort of known it was out there and just hadn't picked it up. And all these little teeny short stories, basically. And you know, like you said, it's a moment. You know, it's like usually a a fairly short interlude, like a like an important piece out of a larger piece, right? Um, What 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 are your thoughts about flash fiction? um, Then. Oh sure, I mean, you know, these all
1: are kind of variations on the same thing like we can we can talk about the difference uh between a, a cup and a plate and a bowl you know and it's all just sort of the shape of the of the thing but but on some level they all kind of seem like the same sort of thing i mean we have poems uh, uh which can be really short or really really long flash fiction seems almost like a poem to me um i don't know tons about it i i, mm-hmm. I don't do it uh, but the the bits of of flash fiction uh uh, or prose, you know, the, the short prose poems uh, that I've read all seem to, to, to revolve around a, you know, an, an instant or or a feeling again uh, as being the primary thing, rather than say plot or something, mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're just yeah. going for a, an emotion. You know, you want readers to walk away from it feeling something. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm working rather on rather than
1: necessarily intellectual.
0: Yeah, I'm personally working on a collection of flash fiction. Actually, they got started when I was taking that awesome week-long class with your mom Mm -hmm. at Centrum. And, yeah, no, it's funny because I brought it to some of my friends who could give it a read and give me some feedback. And to me, flash fiction was exactly that. It was about a, you know, flash-in-the-pan moment a brilliant emotional usually emotional type of instant in a larger picture they were all lyrical and emotion it was meant to trigger a feeling and people are so used to the concept of a story of any type needing to have a plot and a a story question and an answer and a story arc and all this stuff and and so um it was interesting because they were like, yeah, but this doesn't have that. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't have that. So I, I, I'm wondering, do you think flash fiction is someone took short stories and said, I wanted to distill it down a little bit more? Or do you know anything at all about sort of the, like, where flash fiction came from as a concept?
1: I, I honestly don't really know exactly mm. where it came from as a concept. Um, I'm going have to do I, some
0: research into that.
1: I tend to. My stories tend to be a little a little longer, uh, even for for short stories in the, mm. the, the twenty page range. Um, usually, they're, they're things that started out as thirty page stories that I've I've had to you know like cut through, wade through, and and cut out. I tend to mm-hmm. like a kind of long looping sorts of narratives uh, that kind of go into the the the, the cracks and the corners and people's minds. And,
0: you really and, do uh, do that, don't you? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. so escalation dominance. Yes. There's the background of of this couple and where they live and all that. But the, so when it comes to a feeling, as I was reading this one, it was, um, a feeling of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that as a criticism at all. It's exactly what I think this woman in, I have this impression that her life is lived with a certain buzzing level of anxiety that relates to all these different things from her job to her marriage, to, how she was or was not comfortable in a festival environment to this child, you know, like you said, and, and it, it's true. I loved how you were describing a few minutes ago the idea of a short story is about a feeling. I thought, ah, oh, well, yes, that's exactly what this was about. It was, it, And I, it's ironic that it was enjoyable to read something where the feeling was, for me, anxiety. Was that your intention or is there another feeling you were trying to bring out?
1: Um, I, I can't. So I can't say that that was uh, expressly my in, intention. In that I didn't sit down and think at the beginning. I never do this. I never sit down and think out like uh,
2: you know, this,
1: this story needs to be about anxiety. Uh, but but you're you're exactly right. I mean I think that is the, the primary emotion that comes through. And I think that starts you know with just the the the, the system of of, of mutual shared destruction that kind of overlays the entire thing. We live in this you know, riddled with anxiety as a result of these massive uh, weapon systems balanced, uh, you know, on 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 game theory, on reason. Um, mm. and, and, and that's such a weird thing. That's so strange. And I remember being a kid in the 80s, um, you know, during the tail end of the, the Cold War there, and just being uh, sort of horrified that, that this was, was the world we lived in, that, yeah. that you know, was, was dominated by these things. So uh, I, I think, you know, the anxiety... Um, and I don't know whether it goes from the top down or from the bottom up, but, but certainly her life is entirely riddled with this anxiety, and she has clung to uh, reason as mm-hmm. the thing that will you know uh, uh, save her. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know that that's I don't know if that's going to save her, right? Uh, in, in, in the end, there. right? Um, you know, and so- maybe at the end she finds something else uh, to cling to. But again, it's still this sort of attempt to to dominate the
0: situation. So what year were you born? I
1: was born in
0: 1969. Okay, okay. That's a great year. I was born in 72. And um, so I'm curious. There was a book that I read as a child, probably late middle school or early high school, I think late middle school, about a boy who was, I think, like in L.A. or something, and he goes down, his parents have one of those, nuclear uh, holocaust type of chambers dug down into their backyard and he goes down there to play and while he's down there playing there's this weird shaking like an earthquake and when he comes out it turns out that like all you know a nuclear bomb had been accidentally you know shot off hits la all you know it's this whole you know holocaust of him trying to get his mother to the hot blah, blah blah i'm just wondering mm-hmm. if that was something that you might have also read when you were younger if that was like um, a a book that was taught at a lot of schools or something.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't read that one. I I, uh, I read like uh, uh, Robert Heinlein's *Farnham's Freehold*. Um, it was actually kind of a, a fascist story, if ever ever there was one. Uh, and and of course, I was uh, uh, just crazy for uh, uh, Doctor Strangelove, um, hmm. and uh, uh, and even *The which is was fairly dated movie uh, when that finally when that came out. Uh, so you know, I I got I got those same sorts of stories, but I never read
0: this one. Yeah, okay. I just I sometimes I wonder, you know, when when it comes to a general topic, um and fiction touches upon it, sometimes that fictional story actually goes very wide within the society and a lot of people have read it. But if it's back in your own childhood, you're like, gee, am I the only one that read that or did anyone else ever read yeah. that? You know? Um I think all everyone would remember what is it, um, the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's, you know, and they have the one where the guy is, um, He, um I think he has this hideous, awful, mean wife, and his life sucks, and he goes into a bank vault, and then, of course, there's a nuclear holocaust, and he comes out, and he's surrounded by books, and everyone's dead, and he's going to be left alone. He can finally just sit there and read his books, and then what right, happens? Right. He breaks his glasses.
1: He breaks, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. And so then he, yeah, he's ruined.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, anyway, so, okay. So the next one in here, which I'm going to have to ask you to explain to me um, what your goal was with this one, because this one was just painful to read. And um, so it's called Pleco Fez. Pleco like the fish. Pleco, Pleco Fez. Fez. Okay, tell us a little bit more about, about this story. It's the second. It's the, I think we won't have. If there's one other story in here you want to touch on. We'll touch on that one too. But I just got to know what's the what's the goal with Pleco, Pleco Fez,
1: right? So, um, you know, th- that story began in my mind um, with this. There, in in the Clark Fork River in Missoula, there was a kind of a, a, a an island, a sort of a collection of stones, really, yeah. out there in the middle of the island, and out there, somebody. Had dragged a sofa and thrown this uh, sofa out there. It was probably, um, you know, it was probably college kids. I, I no right. Um, and 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 it had weathered in the, you know, in, in the weather. Probably been out there for a couple of years. Um, and we would go, you know, we we would go out there in the in the river when, when I was in college. And and I remember seeing it, and it always sort of stuck in my mind the sort of idea of someone just just living out there, you know, on the, and, and this was sort of like their their living room. Um, you no, know, that seems that's like this tiny detail in the in the story that that sofa, but that's where it started.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and then, uh, you know, I just I uh, so it, it, everything kind of grew up organically there. So there was there was a kid, um, uh, Wes, who was going to be the main character in it, and then uh, he had this girlfriend, Stacy. And I rewrote it over and over and over again, mm. uh, you know, many many times. And then slowly layers kind of came into it. Uh, none of that is is, is about. Me or, or anybody I've ever known in any way. Um, so it's a, it's a story of this amateur pornography production that gets mm-hmm. made uh, by this couple, and uh, and part of the the making of it, they have to finance the movie themselves, of course, and so they need a thousand dollars, and so he uh, you know he commits this crime in order to get it, and then he's when he's released from from jail, the uh, the last half of the story is sort of his disintegration, wandering around right. the streets of Missoula. Um, and just really falling apart. Uh, and I think, I think of all the collection, and that, one, that one's in the middle uh, because I, I, think it is a kind of, um, I don't want to use the word low point because that's not what that, that sounds really bad. But I think it is, you know, one of the the, the more difficult um, characters to appreciate. And he, he's utterly, I think, destroyed uh, towards the end of it. Yeah, but pretty much. the very much. end of it, I, I didn't <laughs> want his leave him completely annihilated. Uh, and so there's the moment that he's out on the island, and he, uh, he sort of, you know, gets this little bit of fire going. And I, I kind of wanted the rest of the, the collection uh, after that to kind of be an exploration of that little bit of spark,
2: you mm-hmm. know, that image
1: of a little bit of spark. Um, even, as you know, the, the stories that follow that are still people struggling um, to, to get out of
0: their own. All right. Well, that little finger of light is pretty yeah. darn teeny compared to the entire short. But. Um, yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but, but once again, I totally get that. And I think this is what I like about what writers do is. How do I say this? I, all right, okay, folks, everyone out there listening, stay with me until I get to the end of the sentence. It's not going to be long, but I want to make sure it comes across the way I intend it. I have told many people how much I adore and love doing this show because the way I'll put it is um, writers are people who have something to say and they care so much about saying it that they will invest the necessary time and energy and effort to actually get it put down on paper, edited, go through all that and, and published. And to get through that odyssey, you only really make it that far if you started off with a really strong, intense desire to share something. Now, my caveat and the reason I asked everyone out there listening to 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 hold on is that I believe many people who do not write and publish also have something really important to them to say. Maybe they do a radio show. Maybe they are a teacher. So obviously, a lot of people have something they really care about saying. But what I think is brilliant here, the tie-in I'm going to bring back to every person out there in the world, is what I think was the ultimate... The starting point of this story, as you said, was to look out there at this island in the middle of this you know, low-lying river and to see this couch. And then your brain asked the question, why is that there? Who put it there? Who's using it? What might be going on? Right now, all over this world, there are things that if we open our eyes and we look over there and we see something and we ask the question, why is that happening? The answer is really important to figure out. Um, their meaning by asking the question, we then seek the answer and by seeking the answer, we begin to better understand the world around us and hopefully start to have imagine a compassionate reason for why a person is struggling. And if we can imagine that, we become interested and invested in bettering the world around us and trying to solve the problems that might be leading to what we are witnessing.
1: Yeah, I would say I would say so. I mean, I think um, again, I wouldn't want to say that there was one way to, to write a story, but for me, I think it's always very important that no matter who my characters are in the story, no matter how. You know, bad they might be or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I find a way to love them uh, on some level, and and even really, and not not as like a, a patronizing or condescending kind of
0: Mm-mm. thing, but, but,
1: but within them, you know. Yeah.
0: Um.
1: That there has to be a kind of sense that they that that there's there's something about them that that's that's worth worth loving. I, I don't know if that's true of every single character. I don't. I don't really like um the, the, the character Plico says uh, himself.
2: Well, mm-hmm. the, the main mm-hmm. character of the
1: story, I think, has. Um, you know that there's something about him that's still redeemable. Uh, so I, I think that's that's important for or, me. Or even if it's not right.
0: even if it's not redeemable, there's an inherent sadness that a person who has inherent value has hit so many bumps and been brought so low. Yeah. You know, that's the whole piece of compassion. It's interesting because just recently. Um, on Facebook, um, in a community I'm familiar with, there were some conversations about um, people who were homeless, and basically there was one perspective of, oh, look, I'm noticing there are some new people in the community who are homeless, and they're asking for donations on the corner of the road or whatever, and the response to witnessing that was condemnation and judgment and fear and a form of of xenophobia it was like could they just you know go away it was completely non compassionate and and this conversation had come up a couple of times and then other people started to come in and say okay well you know, you're noticing this person, you mention it, and then you immediately assume all these negatives and come down in a very, you know, um, non-helpful way. But, hey, I've been homeless, and I was a great person when I was homeless, and these were the forces that caused me to be in that position. Because that's the other side is the person who goes by and goes, oh, no, there's a there's a person on the street. I haven't seen them here before are they a local person who just lost their home or what happened in their life that caused them to be in this challenging situation? And the, and that, that the difference between those two reactions is what leads to how a culture or society responds in a way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've not been homeless, but I've always kind of, Felt that as a possibility, uh, you know, when I was when I was was younger. Anyway, uh, that that was sort of out there, um, and and, and uh, I mean, I, I'm very far from being being homeless now. But I, I think you know, if if you if you, you see people uh, like that, it's hard not to 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 have compassion uh, for what's what's going on. I, I think when you write about those sorts of things, you, you need to avoid uh, trying to sort of come at the writing from from the top down, from the position of, you know, of, of not being homeless, looking at the homeless or something, and just try to figure out what's going on in this human's life uh, right now. If you're trying to sort of, to, to create that empathy, you know, if you're trying to write a piece that's going to create that empathy, uh, it, would be, it would be good, I think, to just, to, to let them be a human on the page rather than to try to fit them into, um, into some kind of, like, ideological box.
2: Right.
1: They're here right. because of this. 'Cause there there are all kinds of them. There any you know, there's many ways to end up homeless. Um, yeah. you know, out there as you can think of.
0: Yeah. One, one thing. Right, right, right. Okay. So, Charlie, we are distressingly this happens faster than I want it to. We are getting to the end of the show. I uh, would like to invite you to perhaps if you prepared a piece you'd like to read.
1: Um, I, yes, I have a, a, a short uh, section of a short story Yeah, Brilliant. I yeah, I okay. love
0: to give um, voice. I love to give, let the authors give voice to uh, some of their writings. So uh, let's see, real quick, folks, just to make sure that if you've just joined us and are catching up with us, I am March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose Poetry and Purpose. I am interviewing Charlie Henley about his collection of short stories called The Deep Code. You can find Charlie online. He has his own website, charliehenley.com, and that's Charlie with an L-E-Y and Henley with an L-E-Y. Also, Charlie, you said that you really enjoy Twitter and you're on Facebook. Yes. Okay, well, which which story? Uh, so this is a little section
1: um, from early in the final story, Cerrito Blanco. Here we go. Tessa had been in the field near the steakhouse, but after a while she had walked along the arroyo and then down to the highway where shreds of cellophane blew in the hot wind. The sun had burned her cheeks, her arms. Her shoulders were pink around the straps of her tank top. Waves of heat rolled off the asphalt in the distance. Her throat burned from the dust. Dust covered her face, her legs. She crossed the road to the gas station where the sign claimed they had ice-cold Coca-Cola, though Tessa had no money to buy one. On the road, tourists had passed. They were hauling their boats out to the reservoir, some headed south to the casinos near Española and the past life therapy centers down in Santa Fe. If they stopped, it was to fill their cars at the gas station, their minivans and RVs, or to lunch at one of the restaurants. Indeed, somebody had parked the BMW slantwise at Carla's. That's where she saw the boy, He stood under the shadow of the eaves at the diner. He had thick black hair that hung down shaggy around his face. He was a small boy, skinny, though not as skinny as she, and it was hard to tell, but she felt that he was probably younger, 11 maybe. There's a dog in that BMW, he said. Tessa looked across the road to the steakhouse. Well, it's a hot day, he said, don't you think? She folded her gawky arms and squinted. Heat shimmered off the roof of the BMW nodding she walked to the car and peered into the back seat where she saw the dog it lay panting at one of the windows its tongue had lolled out of its mouth and its eyes were glazing in the heat she looked up the dirt road at the scattered trailers the adobe church near a fence post at the corner of the field lay several chunks of concrete and the land was dotted with junipers and chola cactus you live around here she said he pointed to a trailer off the side of Carlos. i think the guy's in the diner he said you tell him. My mom doesn't want me bugging the customers. Go fill a bowl with water, she said. Are you going to tell him? No. What are you going to do? I'm going to get this dog out of there, she said.
0: Oh, thank goodness you ended on that because I'm like gripping the table. (laughs) Yeah, I know, Oh, I'm thinking, okay, grab the the concrete, break the window.
1: (laughs) And from there, you know, the the action ensues.
0: Yes, the story goes on. So there we go. All right. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. And that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Charlie Henley here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana.
2: Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law the lobbyists at Washington do not At liberty the bureaucrats fall. And until they are purged we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped We are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices The view Till you do The bidding of the many Not the few You enforce your monopolies With guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your fury has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We had little to lose, we must confess Your empty words you leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets We occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You can't divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do the bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We are the many you all the few